No, no, I know what you're going to say. I'm not over there, and there's not a candle behind me. I'm going to hit the ground running on this one. Neverwinter Nights 2 is an excellent game, right? I, I mean, you may disagree with me on that, but I think it's a good game. I haven't reviewed it yet as of recording this. Neverwinter Nights 2 has one of the worst endings to a video game I've ever seen. It's awful and terrible, and pisses me off and leaves me feeling just... Do you think Neverwinter Nights 2 deserves a lamentation? Because the unfortunate reality of this episode is it's actually pretty decent up until the 35 minute and 15 second mark. I cannot in good conscience give this episode a lamentation just because the last 11 minutes pissed me off so hard I want to throw my freaking... I was actually thinking about this. Check it out. So, Whoa. That's weird and shouldn't be happening. Oh, shoot. Uh, hang on. I've destroyed everything. No! <laughs> there we go. Okay. Um, so, I've got these discs, right? Uh, let's see here. So we've got... Dear Doctor is on the same disc as Sleeping Dogs, Silent Enemy, Cold Front, and Fortunate Son. That would be... This disc right here. You're probably wondering, why aren't these discs on my computer? As I think I've mentioned before, I just rip all these. It's way easier and more convenient to just watch a, a local file than to plug these in and out of my computer, especially since I don't actually have an internal disk drive. I have to use an external, which I have, and I plug into that. So I was thinking about taking this and just snapping it in half. I'd lose a few other episodes, which is why I'm not going to do that, but thought about it. See, here's the deal. I'm reminded, I just mentioned Neverwinter Nights 2. Allow me to use another analogy. Voyager alliances. Now, when I think of alliances, I think, ah, I hate that episode. But when I went through it for the rumination many years ago, I was like, this is actually a pretty good episode. I'm kind of with it. I'm kind of down. And then right at the end, it pissed me off really badly. Sound familiar? Even under the new system, where, you know, I can give more than one lamentation per series, I still wouldn't give Alliances a lamentation. It is a good episode until it completely ruins everything. So, um, it's interesting to mention that, because apparently Billingsby loved this episode, and Braga loved this episode, and Star Trek Magazine loved this episode, and the guy who played Mayweather, his name I don't remember right now, and I didn't write it down, loved this episode. Which is funny, because he doesn't really have any lines in it, but... Anyways, point being, apparently this was a rather well-liked episode. What did you think of this episode? No, really, don't hold back. Don't hold back, it's okay. I want to punch this episode until it can't get up anymore. Until it's just laying there on the ground, unable to move, because its legs are broken. From punches, yeah, I hit really hard, okay? <sighs> let's rewind. Let's save all that anger. Let's build up to it. So, he comes in, starts caring for the menagerie, eats the bug. Okay, it's a really boring cold open, but it does get across the point. This is a Phlox episode. And credit where credit is due, Billingsby and Phlox in general do something very well. They portray a different culture. 
and portraying a different culture is about as close to portraying a different species as we're really going to get within the confines of real-life fiction. Because there's only so much you can do. If you try to make something too alien, then what you have is something alien, which you no longer can understand, and therefore you're very limited in what you can do with it. After all, the moment you start th trying to use them again, you start thinking about things like motivations and mindset and approaches, you start to think of it from a human perspective, and they start being less alien. So, different culture, that works a lot better. And I think they do a good job with flocks and have previous to now, too. Um, so we have a letter from home. That's nice, okay. Um, I do like the idea of messages which are regularly dumped towards them. That's actually kind of neat. Probably mostly stuff that's low tier, you know, just messages or correspondences. Or Tucker actually mentioned in a previous episode he gets uh, engineering manifest, you know, whatever, you know, uh, new engineering updates, that kind of a thing. Uh, Phlox also just kind of meanders his way up to the thing. Now, I know that someone else who shall go nameless, I've had a brief, actually raised an aggravation about this, because there's this calm music playing as he's narrating his letter, his dear doctor, and he wanders up and is like, oh, it's just a first-degree burn. Now, a first-degree burn isn't a big deal, and he could fix it right there on the spot. I wonder if he knew it was a non-threat issue before he decided to casually meander down there. He even mentions how it's a mundane issue. It's just, you know, routine, right? And that's natural. You know, it, doctors do have to deal with mundane things. McCoy actually complained about that several times. It, the really good doctors are the ones you need when you face something real. This is true in tech, uh, IT as well, in troubleshooting, you know, uh, because most of the IT work you're ever going to do if you work in IT troubleshooting and IT you know, repair or tech or help or whatever is going to be very mundane, easy stuff that's going to take 20 seconds to fix. Then every now and again you get a RAID array which somehow lost all of its information but also didn't. It hasn't been wiped yet, so you're trying to rip the information out of, out of it even though the array itself has been corrupted. I spent the better part of a weekend working on that once. Just That's a, just a specific example, and I think I actually messed up some of the words there because this was a long time ago, but the point is getting access to that information was not an easy thing to do. That was a real problem, and I fixed it. Yay! So you kind of see the same approach here. So I'm with it. I'm with it. We then see Porthos, who should stop eating cheese. That's a thing. Nice bit of continuity. You know, credit where credit is due. Uh, this also is amusing because Phlox comments on how weird it is that humans attach emotional connection to inferior species, which is a bit of an insight into his culture. Again, this whole episode helps flesh, I almost said Phlox out, flesh out the Denobulus. How do you Phlox out? Do you just pull the tongue and go, nah. That hasn't even happened yet. I keep waiting for it to happen. It's one of the things I remember most about Phlox, and I haven't seen it yet. Anyways, I, I do have to admit Flox is growing on me, which is funny, because I want to punch him until he can't get up by the end of the episode. But let's ignore that for right now. So, uh, they go to watch For Whom the Bell Tolls, is the name of the movie they're watching. I will admit I didn't recognize it at first. A couple things I find fascinating about it. First of all, they're still doing movie night. Okay, that's, that's cool, a little recurrent continuity there. Second of all, they obviously wanted to watch this one. Yawn oh, attack, other than, you know, just watching whatever came up on the RNG. But what I really like is he's watching it with Cutler. And Tucker starts crying a little bit during the thing. And he's like, oh, I'm not crying. But what I really love is Flox's commentary on that, which is twofold. One, wow, people cry at fiction. 
I mean, that's just nonsense, right? Who would ever possibly shed tears over fiction? I'm sure you've heard that statement in real life. But here it's actually not meant as a jab. Instead, he finds it fascinating. Because what he sees is these people do incredible, amazing things and face terrifying circumstances and are just fine. But a, a movie can bring tears? How strange. He then further develops that, or did it before I forget the order, by talking about how the fact that Denobulans used to have visual media fiction and then they got rid of it because they found out their real lives were more interesting. I, I find that very concept fascinating. I really do. The idea of finding actual real life more engaging than fiction. I certainly don't agree, because real life can suck it, and I tend to live in fiction, although in fairness that's my job. But still, I imagine several of you would agree with me that fiction tends to be more interesting, if nothing else, than real life. <laughs> so, <clears throat> this then leads to Cutler, who is absolutely throwing herself at him in a very flirtatious manner. And I hope you enjoy this, because she's only in one episode after this, and mentioned in one further one. Uh, I actually did a little looking into that, by the way, why Cutler doesn't start coming back after this. It turns out the answer is... Yeah, I don't know either. The woman who plays her had no problem coming back by her own interviews. And Rick Berman said, yeah, we wanted to bring her back. We wished she could have come back. Yeah, that, that's your decision, Berman. <laughs> you have that power. Anyways, I have no idea why they decided to axe her. Maybe they just don't want recurrent guest stars? I don't freaking know. Although they had no problem bringing Combs back, but then again, Combs is a fan favorite and is also awesome. Not that I'm trying to imply Cutler's actress isn't awesome. It's just it's, when you get to the top percent and then you get above that. And Combs is awesome. Moving on. So uh, he, she's flinging herself at him. And he makes this comment that he's finding it hard to tell if she's romantically interested in him. Now, at first, my first thought is, oh, come on, dude. But then I realized culture. All the things she's doing are things that we use as methods in which to indicate interest either romantic or friendly, with someone else. So it's entirely within the realm of feasibility that he doesn't really know how to interpret those signals. In fact, he flat-out admits female fer human pheromones are so hard to detect compared to denobulans, which indicates to me that that's the main method they use. I mean, yes, humans do have pheromones, and that's a thing, but based on his comments, I'm thinking, no, no really, you can tell when someone is interested in you romantically or at least within the interest of mating. I'll come back to that point later. So, um, I'm sure glad Hoshi is there to use the translator when interacting with the Valakians. I mean, how could we possibly... So Hoshi is misused there, as usual. Uh, then we get to the actual premise of the episode. N not yet, actually. We're not there yet. But we get to the, the core idea. There is a planet that has just enough tech to have space flight, but not faster than light flight. But they're aware of it, because they've interacted with a couple of races, including, um, oh, what was it? I think it was the Farangi or something like that? I don't know, I've never heard of them either, but... Of all the choices, that's an interesting one. I wonder if that was deliberate, since acquisition is coming up. Anyways. So... <laughs> There's a planetary plague, and they're using their ships just to try and get out and find any kind of help. 
This makes sense even if they don't know about faster than light and alien life, but the fact that they do makes them all the more likely. I'm sure there were state-sponsored attempts to reach out into space just to find anyone. A couple catches to that, though. Um, so we can send out communications now that can go the speed of light. Um, actually, I think we can go faster than light in terms of communication. Don't quote me on that. Please don't quote me on that. I'm actually not that up-to-date. Up I'm interested in physics because when I was studying for the extant, I decided to just rewrite physics. What? Don't look at me like that. Real-life physics are in, in opposition to spaceflight as a concept. So if you want to have a space setting, you need to do something with it. <sighs> Point is, I'm wondering if they've just been beaming signals out non-stop, hoping someone detects that, while their ships are heading out in all directions, hoping just against hope that they interact with anything. Normally I'd make fun of this kind of a thing, but with the level of the epidemic they're facing... No, this makes perfect sense. I'm surprised we haven't started doing that now. Uh, right, okay, so as a fresh reminder, I'm recording this back in 2020 when there's an epidemic going on right now. It's okay, it'll certainly be gone by the time this video goes live. Right? Tell me, tell me the epidemic's over. Oh, God. Anyways, <clears throat> so they all are trying to flee. That's cool, I'm with it. And... Then what happens is there's a scene with Hoshi and Phlox talking in Denobulan. I like that scene. It's it's actually a good Hoshi scene, which is rare in this show. In fact, I think it would be the second time we've seen a good Hoshi scene in the entire series so far. And it's just kind of neat to have that whole conversation going back and forth. And it appeals to her strength, and it fleshes out him, not her. I'm with it. So, we get to the planet. We start studying it. They have a 1 in 3 infection rate. I don't think we've ever had anything... Uh, no, we haven't. We have never had anything that I'm aware of that is that deadly in real life. Even at a local level. Not counting like down to the village level. Because there are villages that have been wiped out thanks to real life epidemics. But... To my knowledge, the worst we've ever had is actually a 1 in 4 infection rate. You probably know the one I'm talking about. So 1 in 3 is slightly worse, and just I, I'm trying to picture 1 out of every 3 people I know just kind of slowly getting worse and dying, and that's a hard thing to picture. I know a lot of people. It's okay, I'd probably be one of them, if we're being honest with my track record, with my health. <sighs> Either that or my immune system has got the, the Three Stooges effect going on. <clears throat> so, that's horrible. T'Pol says they should set up security. This is a subplot that doesn't go anywhere and only involves her. In fact, it only shows up twice. Once right here, and once later when Archer goes to the ship. I'm just going to talk about both now, since it's only the two things. Of course they should set up security. Even on the off chance that the Valakian government doesn't decide to try and take you hostage and force your crew to try and cure them, which I could see a desperate species or government or even individual or special interest group or terrorist group or local militia or local military doing, or anyone whatsoever I could see doing that. But then you add in the fact that just because the people in charge are cool doesn't mean everyone else is. Unfortunately, thanks to the limited nature of Star Trek, we only really interact with one hospital and one little village of the Menk. That's it. We don't see the kind of things we probably should be seeing, like interactions with heads of state, 
or, you know, touring different areas, going to different hospitals. I understand that sets are expensive. You know, I get it. I think the head of state thing probably should have been pushed into the episode, at least as a side bit. Maybe have someone in costume come in and be like, I, I understand you're the captain of the vessel. Yes, uh, doctor, if you'll excuse me. And they wander off to go talk about politics and things while Phlox tries to, design, you know, just something would have been nice, but I digress. This, of course, then leads to the other thing, which is that several ships have approached and hailed Enterprise constantly because they think they have a cure, or maybe they can help, or please, I'll trade you this, or I'll give you anything. God, please, just give us something. The desperation would be obvious. Of course it would. One in three infection rate. And they do have ships, they just don't have faster than light. I wonder if the Ferengi would offer to sell the warp drives. Boy, that just sounds like a terrible idea, doesn't it? Anyways, however you think of that, it's it's something that isn't developed further at all, because why would it be? Why would we actually cover something interesting in this episode? Sorry, sorry, sorry. We're, we're getting to the point where I'm going to get a little more upset at the episode. This then leads to them talking about the mech, who are not as evolved as the rest of us. Okay, I'm just skip over that for the moment. Um... They talk about the scale of the disaster. Phlox asks to Paul if she about infatu uh, you know about Cutler, and to Paul points out that most humans are more interested in infatuation than in actual romance. And oh my God, I think she just described the romance of the week, which is funny because, to my knowledge, this romance between Cutler and Phlox only lasts this episode. I could be wrong about that. We'll see when we get to uh, two days and two nights, quite a few episodes from now. Anyways. So they, they look into it, and we find out this is a form of genetic degradation. And not quite cancer, but certainly something I could use the adjective cancerous to describe. This is a genetic defect that has been spreading in their species for a while. It's just getting more widespread. So that's neat. Then we have the most uncomfortable scenes in the episode, where they talk about the inequality between the two species. I really don't want to talk about this, and I could I could unload on this. This was a this was a whole topic in Far Beyond the Stars back in DS9, and that was two people who are of the same species. But here we have the <clears throat> less developed species of the Mank who are on the verge of an evolutionary cusp, and blah 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 blah, and they show several signs of being smart, but they're not allowed to live where the land is fertile, but they're provided for. The only thing I'm going to say about this whole scene is it once again does a good job of showcasing Phlox's mentality and being of a different culture. First, he finds this po totally acceptable. The fact that, you know, the Valakians are using the Menk as cheap labor. Why? Because the two species are coexisting. Normally this would lead to a sort of a devastating one race wiping out the other kind of a situation, and he finds this preferable. I once again point to Babylon 5 as an example of that kind of a concept happening. With the uh, Centauri, specifically. So, okay, kind of see where he's coming from. Not sure I agree, but of course, the whole point is that his cultural perspective is different. This then leads to her being upset about this, because it just it, just because it's a different culture doesn't make it right. He then immediately says, hey, did you know I'm married? Three times or two times or whatever. I have multiple wives. That's clever. I'll give you that, writers. Because Now, you'll notice the episode doesn't call attention to that. The episode thinks it's totally fine that he's a polygamist. But 
it immediately contrasts, I find that other culture in wrong, and just because it's another culture doesn't make it right, is immediately contrasted with polygamy. Now, for the record, God, I don't want to talk about polygamy. On paper, I don't see anything wrong with it. I'll, I'll go ahead and say that. But I think in practice, it's a bad idea. And I'm going to explain why, because screw you, this is my job to talk about this, and you brought it up, this is your fault. One person getting along with one person is already difficult enough. There's already millions of complications of physiology and biology and emotion and interaction and development and adjustment and culture and lives and everything that constantly interacts with the two and their attempt to be a couple. And that's just two people. The reason... I'm going to go and be blunt. It is my opinion that the reason most couplings don't actually last is because they shouldn't. Because they don't really last long term. Because they don't really fit long term. Either because they weren't willing to put the work and effort into it. Or because they literally are just incompatible in some manner or another. You know, maybe they just, one person really, really just likes different kinds of music. And the other can't stand that, right? I've heard people break up for stupider reasons. I'm sure you have too. Let's be honest, if someone breaks up over music, they were looking for an excuse, weren't they? Which brings me to my point. It is so easy for that to fail. So you see why I say adding more to the mix? Well, this is just even more horrific, isn't it? Because even if we just go up to four, I think, okay, hang on. He, he mentioned that he has, was it three? I can't remember. Let's assume it's three wives, and each of them has two other husbands, so it's three to three. No, it, it would make more sense if it was two to two, wouldn't it? No, it would, it would be three. I'm right, I'm right. So, obviously that just means branching ridiculous. But let's just keep it confined to the immediate circle of flocks. So we've got flocks and two women, each, uh, excuse me, three women, each of whom have two other men. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people. My math is probably wrong here. Now, I want you to imagine this working out. You see my point? But Phlox is a different culture. And based on how he discusses things, while I have no doubt there's some romantic tint there, I find myself wondering if it's actually a biological reason. I've gotten the impression in several ways that the Nobulans are more survivalistic. I don't mean that as an insult, but I mean they have less intangibles in their life and more tangibles. It's far less about finding one person that you love for the rest of your life to be happy and together with and finding someone who you're okay with because that way you can ensure the propagation of your species and increase genetic diversity. And you see how those two approaches are basically completely different and yet both valid in their own manner. One is focusing on the intangible, one's focusing on the tangible. I really wonder if in the Denobulan history there's something that is very Krogan, to put it in such terms, post-genophage, about their culture, their species, or their planet, or maybe there was something that actually caused them to literally reach a point where they wanted to, they had to breed like rabbits in order to survive at all. Maybe their lifespans were cut short. Maybe they were doing very dangerous work. It would be fascinating to learn if that continued attempt at proliferation uh, Proliclivity, I think it's the wrong word, is still a thing after they're stabilized by interaction with interstellar culture. Just something to, to chew on. 
Meanwhile, you'll notice I'm still liking this episode, by the way. The episode still hasn't gotten to me. And by this point in the episode, I'm like, what the hell? Then the actual dilemma of the episode comes in. This is the problem, uh, other than the big one. This is the problem with the episode. Even the part of the episode I like brings in what I consider the real dilemma way late. So it's, it's the next, it's the second to last thing that happens before the, the, the Neverwinter Nights 2 ending. <clears throat> because what happens is the guy asks for warp drive. That, that's a hell of a dilemma, isn't it? That is a fascinating encounter. That is... <sighs> so, Archer and T'Pol actually have a really good scene talking this out. And Archer mentions, we could give them the tech, we could give them the, the schematics, but how the hell are they going to use it? They don't even know how matter-antimatter works properly. They don't even have an idea of the risks. And, of course... They probably don't even have access to the materials or the expertise in crafting those materials to the right specifications to make any of this work. So we'd have to stay and help them. We are now committing to that. And in so doing, that's an interesting dilemma too. T'Pol makes an interesting comment there. The Vulcans decided to, stop to stay and help the humans, and we've been there for 90 years. The problem with that comment is that it's actually a false analogy, in my opinion. Because there's two huge differences here. First of all, the Vulcans unifying and allying with the humans actually was an almost universally net positive thing to both species and cultures, and of course will lead to the, the Federation and all sorts of awesome things in the future. But even at this point in history, she could probably tell that that has been a beneficial symbiosis between the two species. Right? That's problem number one. What they're discussing here is probably less developed. But then let me, let's read the second thing. The problem number two here is the Vulcans stayed. Well, actually, they didn't. No, they didn't. What Archer is discussing is sticking around and couching them and figuring out how to figure this stuff out so that they can do it themselves. Whereas the humans had already figured out Warp Drive, thanks to Cochrane, and are an equal partner. The Vulcans didn't stay, the Vulcans allied and became the only ally to the humans and vice versa. They became the first interstellar alliance, relatively speaking. It's a little different of a scenario than what's being painted. So, while it's a nice scene, I do think the analogy falls on its face. Now, I could already hear you counter-arguing, well, hang on, that could happen with the Valachians. This could become exactly the same type of thing. And you know what? That's valid. If they decide to stick around and help out with this, it is possible that this could become another partner, a triad now, of alliance. And they could become equal members, and they could hold their own, and blah, blah, blah. The one in three death rate probably hinders that, but let's not go into that. Either way, this dilemma is a fascinating one. I could, I could spend so much time, I'm probably screwing up the green screen, I could spend so much time just debating this, looks like I'm not, which is awesome. This is, this is the kind of stuff I like to eat up about Star Trek, this kind of, what do we do? How do we deal with this? You know, it's not a tech issue, it's not a techno babble issue, it's not a magic hand wave issue, it's, we have a societal, political problem now. Do we reach out to these people and form formal interactions with them and try to help them out? Which brings me to my first 
major complaint about things. At no point whatsoever does Archer or T'Pol consider phoning home and getting the advice of the people who are actually in charge of this. Archer unilaterally decides, because he's Janeway, that they're not going to help them. They're not going to stay and help with the warp. Because he's Janeway. That actually pisses me off a lot. Especially given that, thanks to the buoys, we already know, they can have regular two-way communication back on Earth. Hey, you put it in the show, okay? Don't blame me for using the tools you gave to the characters. So he should be able to talk to Admiral Forrest right now, who should be able to get into meetings with high command of both humans, let's say Starfleet, and the Vulcans, and they can debate this sucker out. No, instead he debates. He never, ever tries to phone home about this. At least not that we see. Now, this is a Phlox-centric episode, so maybe it's just happening off-camera, but it, you could have at least mentioned something about that. The other thing that kind of aggravates me about this is, well, the, the scene that starts at 35 minutes and 15 seconds. Where do I begin? Phlox comes in. Good acting. Good acting on Billingsby's part. Phlox comes in. Um, he has discovered that it's a genetic mutation and that it's the kind of thing that might, that maybe they shouldn't fix. And he, he very cautiously posits that idea to Archer. <laughs> because, of course, Archer um, has this thing called compassion, which Phlox at multiple points in this episode references as being a negative trait. There's that culture thing again. So, <clears throat> Phlox is like, maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we shouldn't interfere with their evolutionary process. All I'm saying is, let nature make the choice. I've actually dissected this idea uh, extensively across my discussions about Voyager, TNG, and Deep Space Nine. Mostly Voyager and TNG, that's where it mainly came up. I think I've made my point about how much this kind of thing pisses me off several times. And the fact that they actually try to state that allowing an entire species to die out is acceptable because nature is choosing, as I've said many times, is actually just religion. No, really. I talked about this in TNG. I'm pretty sure I've talked about it twice in TNG. What they're basically saying, you know, if there is nature, if there's a higher power, if there's a, a cosmic plan, what they're referring to is God. They're not calling it that, but that is the, the way they are applying that idea. That there is something that knows better than them, therefore we should not question it. Now, maybe that's valid. I don't think it is. Not because I'm pro or anti-religion, just because I can think. And by mere virtue of that provable proof, that mathematic proof, I now have the ability to say I should think. That old saying, I think, therefore I am, isn't just a fancy slogan. It indicates the fact that by virtue of being able to conceive of things, we should. And in so doing, we should question and think and learn and move. Now that is, of course, just my opinion. And I am just a moron. But that is something I very firmly believe in. This then leads me to the fact that Phlox has decided to have his faith placed in this cosmic plan, as he calls it, nature, in order to allow this entire society to die out, 
this entire species to die out, because in so doing, the other species might rise up and have a cultural and evolutionary revolution. Actually, let's let's ignore the culture thing, because he doesn't give a crap about that. Everything he talks about is from a biological thing, a pragmatic, tangible perspective, which again goes back to what I mentioned. This is why I spent so much time talking about the polygamy thing. I get the very strong impression, intended or no, that the Denobulans are far more about the tangibles than the intangibles. This also kind of relates them to the Vulcans and probably explains why the Vulcans were the in-between between humans and Denobulans. So, he is looking at this from a scientific, greater zoomed-out perspective. Now, that is a valid perspective to take. I know that's not a popular thing to mention, but every now and again people do have to consider that when they have the ability to interact and affect the lives of millions, that they do need to zoom the camera out as part of their decision-making process. It's, if it's not obvious that I am actually angry, so for those of you who don't know me, um, this is this is not full tilt rage. Full tilt rage is a lot quieter than this. But this is me being actually angry, because this whole concept pisses me off. The prime this is this sort of thing is exactly why I hate the Prime Directive, by the way. Because not only is it something I fundamentally disagree with its application, not the concept, just the application, but it's also the kind of thing that makes me look at and go, Oh, so you're gonna get all preachy and pontificate as if it is the right thing. I have a phrase for that. Justice Lord. I'm not going to go into detail on that one. Some of you know what I'm referencing here. Phlox very much is a Justice Lord in this episode. He is absolutely someone who has decided not only is this the correct path, but it's the right path. I mean, why wouldn't it be? This is absolutely the thing that should happen. Why would I feel bad about dooming an entire society to death. It is the correct path. And when I phrase it that way, you probably see why this pisses me off so much. And I have to phrase it that way because the episode doesn't. The episode also frames it as if Phlox is correct. Phlox is in the right. This is as good a time as any to talk about... Well, hang on, hang on. Hang on. Let's, let's leave that for one second. Because I want to mention one other thing I just noticed on my notes. Evolution is more than a theory. It is a fundamental scientific fact. Yeah. What's your point? See, here's the problem. Archer is hesitant to accept this because Phlox has a theory. A theory, dot, 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 that what's going to happen is that the Menk are going to have an evolutionary... Again, not cultural, an evolutionary... Uh, Revolution, that they are going to have this big golden age. Evolutionally, again, this is about biology. This is about uh, natural selection and cascading changes throughout generations, which is what evolution is, right? He's not talking about like some big cultural renaissance. He is only thinking about the, the tangible side of things, the biology, right? So he has this theory that that's going to happen and that it will not happen with the Valakians present. That is a theory. In fact, it's actually two theories that happen to coincide, which he doesn't really have any substantial proof of. All he has is some slight indicators, which he hasn't even done the beginnings of scientific rigor, in order to determine if there's any validity to them. Outliers are outliers for a reason. So, he has a theory. Two theories. Then he says, no, evolution is not a theory. No, of course it isn't. What's your point? That's not relevant to what you're talking about. 
the, the nature of exactly how rain comes down from the sky and then is re-evaporated back up into clouds is not a theory. That is a fact, a scientific fact. Now, if you say it might rain tomorrow, guess what? That's a theory. And you can't defend it will rain tomorrow with ah oh, the, the the scientific principle of I don't know what's actually called is not is it's 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 a fundamental aspect it's a fundamental fact it's not a theory. You could see and again I'm phrasing this to really show just how stupid this actually is, because if someone tried to make that argument you'd just laugh at them. It's nonsensical. Now we'll talk about the change of the episode, which is actually a very minor change. However. It pisses me off, pisses me off, and makes me happy. In roughly that order. You see, at 38 minutes and 57 seconds, the very last scene, effectively, heroic music plays as Archer realizes that Phlox is right and he should condone this planet to death. Oh yeah, by the way, um, I mentioned Phlox's theories earlier. I got a theory for you. As the Valakians slowly die out and get more and more desperate and riotous, we descend to a level of anarchy as governmental society breaks down, and the Valakians turn on both each other and the easy target who happens to be right over there, the Menk. How's that for a theory, flocks? So, Archer agrees with him. Heroic music's playing, because Archer is right. I hope some of you are mentally replacing the R there with a capital R, as I've been doing. I, I, even in my notes, when I say right, like, like the Janeway thing, I use a capital R just to denotate it. Archer is right. And I, whenever they draft that directive, which is a really unnatural word to use there, but they had to segue into the prime directive some way, then hey, sure. We didn't come out here to play God. Uh, no, you came out here to explore and help people, so why are you doing neither? I'm just wondering, Archer. Now, then the episode ends. Oh, actually, Phlox mentions how proud he is of Archer, and then he goes to go on a date with Cutler. So the episode was changed. In the original version, this is a direct quote from Billingsby, by the way. In the original version, in the crisis of conscience, the Doctor essentially does something that violates the standard issue... Uh, the standard issue hierarchical obligations to uh, of a crew member to his captain. In effect, he makes a decision that's rooted in I've got bigger fish to fry rather than honoring his captain's wishes. The network... Oh, hang on, so let's jump over that for a second. I couldn't bring myself to alter... Uh, so, the original line from the original script is, as he's reciting this to Dr. Lucas, I couldn't bring myself to alter the evolutionary process on this planet. I consider myself a man who values human compassion, but I find myself in this case a slave to Vulcan logic. Have I made the right decision? I suspect I'll be asking myself that question for many years to come. So what's the change? Well, the change is Archer is now complicit. Because the change is... <clears throat> The network felt that, no, it was important to essentially make sure that everyone was here to support the captain's decisions. Personally, I thought, well, I think you've lost something in the potential tension, but that's not my call. Again, direct quote from Billingsby. There are actually several other references that acknowledge and, and reference this thing as well. The idea is the captain always has to be seen in a positive light, and everyone has to agree with the captain. This is the part that makes me happy, because this is the closest thing to hard evidence I've ever found of my theory that Archer is Janeway, and is right. 
Obviously, my own analysis and my own data tell me that. But simply actually hearing that there was some movement under the hood to make sure that everyone always agreed with Archer and he was always in the right, even when he was demonstrably wrong, makes so much of this make so much more sense. That's why I've been clinging to what has effectively been a headcanon theory up to now, because it really does line up with the pieces so beautifully. With this, I think I'm going to go ahead and shuffle that into actually true. Feel free to disagree with me. In fact, as always, I would love to hear your guys' comments down below. I take that back. I'm worried about your guys' comments, because some of you are probably going to be like, how dare you like this episode? And some of you are going to be like, what's wrong with you for not liking this episode? Can I get just one comment where, where I get both of those in one comment? That would really make my day. <sighs> but like Alliances, like Neverwinter Nights 2, this episode just pisses me off right at the finish line. And like I said, the change isn't a big one. All the change does is make Archer just as bad as Phlox. And this is why I don't like Archer. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts, guys. I'll see you next time.